We hear the stories all the time. Man gets 20 to life for deadly assault or women sentenced to 10 years for drug trafficking. More men and women are being sent to jail or prison every day, and even more are simply sitting in jails to await their trials. Why are there so many people behind bars? And what really goes on behind those iron doors? Better yet, what happens when the people get out? The only way to know is to go straight to the source. This is Justice Uncovered. No matter how tragic one story is, it's possible to rise above it. This guest experienced a good deal of trauma during his childhood, yet his story gives hope for a brighter future despite a dark past. We start our conversation by discussing the role his parents played in that past. Brace yourself. First question I'm going to ask you, for the record, is what is your name? My name is Carlos Imad Jermaine Michael Martin. Ooh, there's a name. Indeed. They were happy to have me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we really get started, are you comfortable with this interview being shared publicly for the purposes of the podcast, which is magnifying the voices of the unheard within the criminal justice system? 100%. Yes. Awesome. Now we're going to get into it. So what is your line of work right now? Right now, I am a youth coach through the night school, which is a for-profit chess instruction company. I work out of the Miami chapter virtually, and I work at a car wash. I am a customer service representative slash sales slash attendant. Cool. Yeah. How long were you incarcerated for? I was incarcerated just a month shy of eight years. So about 95 months. Okay. Wow, that sounds terrible when you think about it like that. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound pretty long. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you don't mind my asking, of course, what were you incarcerated for? Not at all. I was incarcerated for my charges or like a brief synopsis? Both, either one. <laughs> okay. So, I'll do charges and synopsis. So, I was incarcerated for felony in the second degree felonious assault, felony in the first degree, aggravated burglary. This event happened, I believe, August 31st, 2012. And I, hmm, I only do short versions of my story when I tell it. I attacked my ex-girlfriend. I, um, I woke that morning intent. I had been like considering self-harm. Uh, intense forms of self-harm for I believe some weeks leading up to that mm -hmm. and that morning I woke up the first thought of my mind was like today's the day I die wow. so uh, my response to that was like I think I was a bit sad but it was also like I was angry and in my anger I tried to direct it towards someone else to hurt that was just doubly doubly cowardice in that sense one and wanting to end my own life and then two attacking someone that really hadn't done anything to me right so synopsis ended wow yeah how old were you when that happened like when you ended up getting arrested and convicted i was 20 years old it was the second day of my sophomore year at columbus state 
yeah, I didn't go to class that day. At a point, I texted a good friend, and it was just everybody was kind of like, aren't you supposed to be in class? And this is after. Right. After the attack, but before the arrest. Mm. It was just bizarre. It was bizarre because, like, during the course of events, I later came to talk about it. And I was like, the, the one of the sick things about it is that based on the quality of our relationship prior to this, it didn't even feel like, it didn't even feel like I, I was hostly, ho- very hostile Is that a word? <laughs> I was interrogating somebody with hostility. Nothing that occurred in that conversation prior to the attack seemed out of step with the quality of our relationship prior to it, which just speaks volumes to like how toxic it was. Right. I recall being like really relieved when I kind of put down the front of I'm going to hurt you because when I went there to her place, it was under the auspices of just like talking. And then over the course of it, I pretty much immediately knew that I was incapable of actually killing myself and or anyone else. Mm -hmm. So it was just like this awkward threatening menacing conversation where i was obviously pretty directionless and pretty incoherent when i put the fronts down so to speak like when it was just us talking Mm -hmm. and there was no threatening going on i remember being relieved and i was like hey just so you know like i don't want to do any of this Mm -hmm. and she was like yeah i know you're just you just are where you are right now it speaks volumes to a lot of things that had kind of not been addressed and some really unhealthy habits that I had become pretty comfortable expressing up until that point. I always felt small. I don't know. I don't know if you are even remotely into the anime and manga. There's a series. There's a character who is a puny, fearful man. Mm-hmm. And when he gets angry, it changes everyone's perception of him. And I always thought, as childish as that sounds, like I actually always thought since I was like eight or nine that when I was angry, I could kind of bend reality to my will, you know? I could do, I could be, I could enforce some degree of stuff. So one of the toxic beliefs that I'd always had was that I obviously pitied myself quite a lot. Mm -hmm. I think to some degree, in my consideration of ending my own life, I was largely wrought out of a sense of pity. And pity not being shared by anyone is was my perception. Right. I always kind of told myself because I would like, I I was exposed to some degree of like actual trauma, not just me imagining it growing up mm-hmm. from kind of everyone in my family. But I think I began telling myself at an early age, like if things go too far, whatever too far it was, then I will act violently. I will defend myself. So it was like this very false humility of, oh, I can suffer, I can take stuff, things aren't that bad. But always telling myself, like, but if they ever do become really bad, then you will take decisive, aggressive, violent action if necessary. Mm-hmm. So, like, that belief, I think, was also kind of nestled in there. Right. And, yeah, what happened, happened. I attacked an innocent woman and then attacked myself. Fortunately, I was not successful in ending my own life. Well, it's definitely a good thing that you're still here. I'd say thanks. So, 
since you said that you got this all happened when you were about 20, 21 years old, that means that when you were released, since you said just a little short of eight years, so you were about 28, 29 ish? Yep. Okay. What other aspects of your story make up who you are? You have shared a little bit of your story and you shared about, you know, the day of the incident. However, that's not all of who you are. So what would be your story? What is my story? Excellent question. I used to balk at this question because I think I lacked a certain degree of knowledge of self (laughs) and that because I didn't want to acknowledge myself. I saw myself as this fragile, small, pitiable thing. Mm -hmm. So I always kind of ran away from those types of exercises. I wanted to be boundless. I wanted to be free. Mm -hmm. That's been challenged pretty powerfully lately by some experiences I'm really fortunate to have had. I haven't really revisited the question though. I'm not afraid to answer anymore. I'm not looking down on it with condescension. It's just one of those things where it's like, I don't have good things to say. I think other people have good things to say. I'd say my story is a good one. It's not for the faint of heart and I'm glad to have it. Not all the parts of it. Obviously I've made poor decisions. Mm-hmm. I don't think I can tell it without telling the story of like <laughs> my parents. <laughs> <laughs> my father was 19 years old when he met my mother. He was 16 years old. I'm sorry, 18 and 15. When I was born, they were 15 and 19. Mm -hmm. And my father witnessed his mother dying after one of her lovers attacked her. He killed her. Oh. He was very young. I think he was like six years old. So my father grew up needing to be strong and needing to be a protector. Mm-hmm. and was that and relished the idea of being intimidating and being powerful and unpredictable and just not weak right his family was associated with a gangster's disciple street gang we were from youngstown ohio this would be roughly around the time youngstown ohio would have been the murder capital of america so not too hard to distinguish oneself as powerful and strong when the city is in in tatters and when violence is considered a virtue. Right. That's him. (laughs) And I'm not saying that's his whole story. I just think like that's, I've almost told you everything I know about the man. Honestly, he wasn't in my life much. My mother, her story is also tragic. I will not share too many details of that, but I think They say trauma not transformed is transferred. I don't know if that's like completely bankrupt psychologically. I don't presume to be a psychiatrist, but it does seem to stand in many cases. She's gone through quite a lot from her earliest years, from people who are meant to just love and protect and guide her. Mm -hmm. Uh, It includes foster home. It includes obviously having me at 16, and it includes her own mental health struggles. Mm -hmm. So... They meet at a party. (laughs) My dad's a pretty handsome guy. My mom's a very attractive woman. There is no longevity in mind. She always says I saved her life. 
because the path she was going down was one of increasing recklessness. That is as close as I can allude to her mental health stuff. Mm-hmm. She was surprised to learn that when she did find out she was pregnant, that my dad was all in. He's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's be a family. She was pleased to hear that. She began learning about his family after the fact, obviously, because it was just a, a night. Right. And she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Their family is wild. <laughs> and she's a mom. So I think to a degree, her instinct was like, okay, like my son can have you and his life and the people in your family that are like not actively sowing chaos in the world. But it was, it was concerning for her. And I think she was always willing to pull me away from that environment. Right. Because that environment was death. So the story is told. He agreed for a time. She had ambitions. She realized what she had to do to provide for a child and the life she wanted for herself. My great aunt Retina agreed that life was sacred. I think my mom was kind of teetering at a point on like to bring the pregnancy to full term or not. And my great aunt Retina, I believe, was greatly impactful in not only keeping me alive, but keeping me in the family. Right. My mom was not allowed to live with her mom. My grandmother told my mom, you either come home by yourself or you don't come home at all. My mom was uh, delivering me after my mom delivered me. Wow. My mom called my great aunt Martina. She told her that life is sacred. That baby is a blessing. Come stay with me. We'll get you together. My mom's a smart lady. And I believe she finished her LPN, her licensed practical nursing certification, her degree. Mm-hmm. Not too many years after I was born, I know she was a phlebotomist, a nurse aide, phlebotomist, and eventually an LPM. My father had a different idea what it meant to be a family man. He didn't see a way where he could abandon his other family, like his biological, his siblings, his cousins and uncles and so forth. Mm-hmm. My mom was trying to leave the city because it was infested. <laughs> the story differs at this point. In one version, she gave him an ultimatum. And was like, choose us or choose them. I need to protect him. He needs to be like safe and grow up well and be guided correctly. Right. Another version of the story is they just fell out of contact (laughs) when she moved with me. So the funny thing is that she's the one that's offered both versions of the events. So I don't really know which one to believe. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. I think I've derived a certain sense of identity from those events, right? Like, Mm-hmm. I'm in therapy to release the negative perceptions of myself from those events, but the positive elements that life is sacred to be alive, to exist is a blessing. Right. I look at the instances that went into me actually coming alive, being able to live as opposed to other options. Right. My mom baptized me, which I always like loved that. She was like, yeah, I gave you up as my firstborn. And I told God like, Hey, he kind of has to step in because I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. I can't do this. That's kind of an important point in my story because very much so at an early age, like around 15, 16, I started challenging the idea of being gods. I got involved into some some occult stuff and I just began rebelling super hard against everything. Mm -hmm. It was predicated on my mom and I's relationship deteriorating pretty badly around this time. Mm -hmm. She discovered that I was sexually active and that was not cool. She was afraid that I would get someone pregnant at 15 or 16, like she did. Right. Come to find out she believes in like generational curses and some degree of like ancestor stuff. So like that does make sense from her perspective. 
Right. At the time, you just think like your parents overreacting that you're doing something that every American teenager does. Mm-hmm. It was in that state that like, basically, I was told no on two separate occasions. There was an incident with my mom. She was going to drop me off to children's services when I was 15, basically to put me in foster care because she thought that I was helping her then boyfriend to cheat on her. And in general, she just didn't like a lot of my actions around that time. So hmm. after that event, I then sought the family that I could connect with, friends that I could connect with and say, hey, like, can I live with you? <laughs> I don't want to uh, be here anymore. And I'm not wanted. Like, it's a win-win. Universally, there was a sense of, now we can't. As a 15-year-old, you're like, I don't understand. Adults are they have abilities to help kids <laughs> right. and I need help. This is not, this is not a good environment for me. Right. There's more to the story, which I'm omitting on purpose. Cause like, I just don't want it. I don't know. It's still my mom. <laughs> of course. Then knowing those details even still like, wasn't enough to kind of do anything. Mm-hmm. So that was like my first moment of being disenfranchised. And I took it really hard and I began questioning, like, I guess kind of like the fibers of my existence. Like, wait a minute. Good people can do bad things, and then when you want to be good, like, no one is around to help, which wasn't cool as a feeling. I don't see it that way anymore, but that's how I look at it then. Mm-hmm. And the second instance was just an instance of me wanting to, like, I guess, validate myself as a as a person trying to get involved in a career mm-hmm. and then being denied. Again, I believe that it was easy to do that then. She, she denies any <laughs> memory of this event. <laughs> So like, we just don't talk about it. Cause I'm like, okay, I can't, I don't want to convince you something that, that in your mind didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But there and again, it was like right after the, uh, attendant in, intended foster care drop off. And it was like, I don't know. It was just a decision that I had to deal with. Mm-hmm. So at these points, I decided to try to gain control over my environment. I began questioning everything. I began questioning what good and evil were. And Mm-hmm. I didn't really have any type of faith formation. So engaging these topics from like a civics perspective is kind of labyrinthine. If you can't agree on what good is and you begin examining laws, it doesn't take much effort to try to deconstruct them. Mm-hmm. This was like not a one-off. I stopped doing social things with my peers. I wasn't involved in extracurriculars at this time. Like I would come home from school, 50-50 do my homework or not, if I had a good handle on the material, mm-hmm. and then just sit in a dark room (laughs) and try to meditate. And then when that would fail, I would basically just think about stuff and just start contemplating things. But it was from the perspective of things not mattering, of of good not being enough. Mm -hmm. And then of me not being enough to handle life, to do good things, and it kind of spiraled. So before I knew it, I was involved in the occult because I wanted to test the idea of good not really being good and maybe evil was good. As abstract as this all is, I assure you this was like, I think my daily life at a point in time. Mm-hmm. This spot I'm sitting at right now, at this library, there's a hill. And I would be on the other side of this hill meditating or contemplating year-round. Winter, rain, sunshine. Wow. That was my idea of control, my mind. Mm-hmm. And the things that I could think of and trying to impact my role in society and in the world.
Due to the magnitude of this interview, it'll be split into three or four parts. Something we touch on in every single part, though, is mental health, a particularly critical topic of discussion these days. You may have seen Oprah and Pence Harry's series on the very subject. In relation to incarceration, it becomes even more evident. A staggering 50% of inmates deal with mental health concerns, and roughly 15% have serious mental health issues. Of course, that percentage is likely higher due to the pandemic. My guest also mentioned some of the trauma he experienced due to his parents' mental health concerns that were never addressed, such as PTSD and likely anxiety and depression, that shaped the course of their lives and decisions. We'll get into more of this in part two, so keep an eye out for the next episode of Justice Uncovered.